Future Now, Future Next, in association with ESB. Be part of a brighter future with ESB. Welcome to RTE's Future Now, Future Next with me, Andy O'Donoghue. In this series, we explore how technology is changing how we live now and how it will revolutionise our future world. At the Chicago World Fair in 1933-34, the House of Tomorrow offered visitors a glimpse of a brighter, easier future as they lived through the Great Depression. Designed by Chicago architect George Keck, the House of Tomorrow was a modern home with floor-to-ceiling glass walls, air conditioning, a new-style open-plan living space, and it had the first General Electric dishwasher. It also had push-button garage doors and, ambitiously, a hangar for the family aeroplane. Perhaps this remarkable design by Eck was intended as inspiration for a weary public, but it also illustrated Eck's own optimism for the future. When we talk about the home of the future, it can conjure up an almost science fiction or utopian futuristic vision in our heads of what homes could look like in the years ahead. And while our imaginations can run wild picturing this, like all of the themes we explore in this series, the pandemic has accelerated the pace of change and it's brought us closer to what the home of the future may well look like. So most of us have gotten used to working from home and we've become adept at juggling virtual meetings, homeschooling and emptying the dishwasher in between. But how will the current situation reflect the reality of future living or influence how homes will evolve? In today's episode, Ali Sheridan will discuss her first-hand experience of sustainable living and how the circular economy will impact on sustainability for all of us. We're joined by Hugh Wallace, who touches on how our homes will need to work in a symbiotic way, both as living spaces and workspaces. And Marguerite Sayers will discuss smart homes, smart home devices, and how we'll power our homes. Thank you for joining us on Future Now, Future Next. How can we make the small changes to move towards more sustainable home living? Well, I'm delighted to be joined by Ali Sheridan, Sustainability and Climate Advisor. Ali, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Thanks a million for having me. Um, Ali, I have to ask you, first of all, sustainability, it literally does start at home, does it? Certainly starting to understand now in this COVID world is just how much uh, time we spend in our homes, how much things happen in our homes and how much opportunity we now have through how we live, where we live to really drive forward um, sustainability impacts and sustainability action. And it's a really exciting time, I think, to start looking at these issues. For the individual, I mean, what can we do? I know there are grand global ambitions to you know to improve sustainability but what about me at home are there little things or bigger things that i can start with yeah i think that's why now is such an exciting time for sustainability and look i think it'd be remiss of us not to talk about the global challenge it is a big one and we really have to drive down emissions in quite a short period of time but that now the challenge is to how we bring that into our lives and where we can use our impact and our influence through our daily lives to start having that impact. So for a person living at home, it can be as something as simple as changing out the light bulbs. But then it's around taking the next step and getting ready to take more action as we get more familiar with the issues, as more solutions start to come to the fore. And increasingly, 
as it starts to make more and more sense to make these moves, whether that's through a financial point of view uh, or whether through a values point of view as well. So there's so many options that are now there that weren't there for homeowners in the past. And like I say, with this new COVID world and spending so much more time at home, it's really starting to make sense to look at how we live and where we can start making those improvements. I think you retrofitted your own home. And so maybe you just tell us about that. And also, uh, you know, for somebody who can't do it all at once, where do they start and how does that process work and how long does it take? We did the the, the biggest job I suppose you can do in terms of a home retrofit. It's called a deep retrofit. And really that is looking at the complete fabric of the home and redesigning it for efficiency and sustainability. So we are here in a very typical semi-D tree bed home in an estate um, that was a D3 on, a, on its BUR rating. And we managed to bring it up through an A2. And that was really through a, a suite of measures that came together. So the first thing that's really important is to get the house airtight. Lots of Irish housing stock, unfortunately, uh, weren't built to the highest of standards and we're losing heat all around the place. Uh, and a lot of the time not knowing that we are as well. So insulation is a massive and really an easy and an affordable thing for a lot of people to start with and really is a really strong first step. Then we looked at the, the windows and doors and replacing them to more kind of a higher standard, better efficiency. We looked at then changing the heating system. So this house had been powered by oil and then we shifted it to a heat pump, which is a fully electric system. Uh, and we put solar panels on the roof as well. You know, but that's that's quite a, um, a lot of work to do, you know, and maybe it's not something that everyone can do immediately. But you can break those things down into like a menu of items, a staircase of options that you can take when you're ready to do so, and when the time is right. When you talk about um, oil, gas, um, electricity, I mean, retrofitting your home like this, it's not just about being socially conscious. It will literally save you money in the long run. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, we have a big challenge ahead of us, not just in Ireland, but globally. We've set big targets uh, in this space. We've earmarked 500,000 homes in Ireland to be retrofitted by 2030, which is a massive, massive task. But we really have to, to widen the conversation about why we need to do it. Yes, we've got the climate challenge, but we also have to think about how we live and what kind of homes do we want to grow up? Do we want our children to grow up in? We're getting much more conscious around issues like air pollution, indoor air pollution, that's coming from things like wood burners. So retrofitting our home, yes, it plays a role in terms of the climate challenge, but it also plays a role in terms of being more resilient to those jumps now we're gonna see in energy prices, getting your, your energy um, really efficient down as much as possible, which obviously translates into better bills, lower bills. It's that health piece as well, better indoor air quality, drier homes. We know that in Ireland, we've got high levels of asthma. When we've got damp homes that are losing a lot of heat, that's not conducive to, to healthy living for, for homeowners in those homes. We have a level of comfort in this house now that I just can't uh, put into words in terms of that, that comfort that comes with a consistent level of heat, hot water on tap, and that should be something we want for all our, our homeowners and all our families around Ireland. So it really is, yes, it's great for the climate, but it's brilliant for so many other reasons. Uh, but I think we have a job to do in, in telling that story a bit more and, and connecting the dots for people. When you talk about how we live now, how do you think our lives have changed, say, over the last 10 years? How are we living differently in our homes that's requiring us to make these changes? Yeah, well, obviously, we're... The way we were living and the way we are living uh, with COVID has maybe challenged uh, what we thought we knew. Pre-COVID, I suppose, we were getting to a point where 
you know, we're introducing a lot more tech and appliances into our homes, which are fantastic in some ways. They're giving us better connectivity. They give us better data about how we live. They make the world smaller in terms of our ability to connect. Uh, but they do introduce more energy use mm. into the home as well. And now, obviously, in a COVID world, we're, we're at home so much more. We're bringing work into our home, all the appliances. So we're, we're here all the time. So understandably, we've seen actually a jump in energy use from a, from a domestic point of view. But really now it's been figuring out what is that balance uh, going forward? You know, the balance of maybe working from home and not having to travel so much, which is, which is positive in terms of emissions point of view, but equally understanding how we behave in the home. What type of appliances are we bringing in? Are they mo the most efficient that we can? Um, are we understanding where the energy use is in the home? Because at the moment, most of us just get a bill Every few months, it's got an emissions number, it's got a, a, a euro number, but it doesn't really tell us where we're using energy in the home, you know, it just tells us our overall figures. So we have a bit of work there to do as well to understand um, where the big uses are and how to make them more efficient. And then we need to not fall into the trap. There's some really interesting research at the moment around, for example, when people change out their, their bulbs to LED bulbs, which is brilliant, really easy thing to do. We leave them on longer because we assume they're better for the environment. So just there's that balance between technology, which is finally becoming available. It's really affordable now. It's coming down in price. But we can never forget about the behavior part. And when it comes to kind of the environmental side, energy efficiency should always be our first port of call uh, and then technology to improve, you know, what's left. Ali, does this make the case in a sense for, you know, monitoring or automation within the home you know in in the old days we used to read the electricity meter and we had a vague idea of what a kilowatt meant but now does it mean that we should be more aware of the energy burn of light bulbs and maybe the lights turn themselves out automatically the heat's never left on by mistake does it make the case for automating the home yeah absolutely i think when you've got that that balance of bringing more stuff into your home and we still have this gap like I was talking there but where are the hot spots where we can where we can connect the dots there and understand and share with people what's using the most energy take the hassle take the barriers out of what is sometimes really hard to manage in the home around energy use so for example if you've got numerous appliances up and running in the house because you've got your office now at home yeah, the oven's on the telly's on for the kids you know that the act of going around and having to switch everything off in the evening while we all try and do it it doesn't always lend itself to how we live busy lives trying to you know manage all these different parts of it so anywhere that we can build in positive behavior we can support it whether that's through data in terms of letting us understand where we're wasting energy or through kind of smart technology that can do a lot of this work itself understand when it's not needed when it needs to, to plug on plug off and um, will be really helpful in terms of maintaining maybe some of the good practices we've started to learn and particularly now maybe as we start to work from home a bit more and make that a more common part of our lives so i mean talking about the circular economy then you know, a few years ago, you'd call a repairman, he'd fix, fix your washing machine. But now, do you think that big companies, in a sense, have um, not only the ability, but perhaps the responsibility to help us make this economy truly more circular? Absolutely. And it, some, in some ways, it's like going back to how we used to do things, but mm. now we need to do it on a much more macro level uh, and a much more user designed level as well. So if you think, for example, um, somebody who's finished maybe with a desk, you know, that they no longer need, is it easy enough for them to get it back to the original manufacturers? How do they take it apart if the instructions have been thrown away five or six years 
you know, beforehand. We have to think about how to make these uh, decisions attractive and accessible for people. And we know companies like IKEA, for example, are really focusing on the circular economy. They're looking at areas not only around leasing furniture, because for example, we only need things like children's beds or baby's cribs for a limited amount of time. You don't need them forever. And then they're also looking at take back and buy back. So like that, as you move through your life stages, as your aesthetic changes in your house, maybe as you move house and you no longer need the items, that's key raw material for someone like IKEA to make new items. So we're starting to see fantastic pilots and fantastic projects around this. Now it's really around scaling that up. And then of course, there's the added benefits in terms of new job creation for that circular economy as we move away from maybe more fossil fuel intensive industries and giving those employees that are affected new um, options and new pathways for a career trajectory. So there's really exciting things happening at a corporate level. Uh, it probably has to speed up, but we're starting to see all the good signs there. Uh, I like that we really have a lot of things that need to happen now in this coming decade in terms of how we redesign the circular economy, redesign for decarbonisation. So um, it's really fantastic to see all this starting to happen. Innovation in the future then. Do you think the home of the future, will it be about micro-generation and a car charger? in everybody's driveway. What do you think the next 10 years looks like at home? Yeah, I mean, for Ireland, I'm so excited about what's coming in the next 10 years. We're at this really key um, inflection point where, you know, that awareness is there now that we haven't always had, that appetite for change is, is there now, and the technology is starting to come true. So things that maybe weren't as affordable in the past, like your solar panels on your roof, are something now that's really accessible if you think of all that unused roof space we have around Ireland at the moment, in a country where, believe it or not, really actually does get quite strong solar gain and has good potential to generate solar energy, is such an untapped opportunity. So we have a very live conversation at the moment around what the future of a rooftop revolution might look like. How do we get more people with solar panels? How do we reward them for that? So policy items like a feed-in tariffs, where I can sell back my excess solar that I've generated that I don't use back to the grid is a fantastic incentive for me. It helps the country meet our renewable energy needs. And I think how we start to think about planning and development with this future mindset now is really also going to help shift our thinking. So yes, we have to retrofit our stock that's already there in terms of bringing up the standards, but starting to think of the house as a, as a contributor to renewable energy, the electric car for those who need it as a battery to store that energy as well. So there's really exciting developments starting to happen. And when we balance them with the, the wider needs around, uh, you know, getting out of cars, hopefully getting onto public transport, making sure that our houses are near to public transport, that holistic kind of thinking um, that we're starting to see means hopefully that we really have a, an exciting future for Ireland in terms of sustainable living. Ali Sheridan, Sustainability and Climate Advisor, thanks for joining us. Thanks a million. You're listening to Future Now, Future Next in association with ESB. ESB, creating a brighter future for all. And I'm delighted to be joined by Hugh Wallace Architect from Douglas Wallace Architects. Hugh, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Hugh, I have to ask you, first of all, over the last 12 months, I think it's shown us that homes aren't just for living in. So do you think we need to rethink what and where we build? Being at home is going to be very different because inevitably we will now be working from home. And I believe we'll be going to a four day week. So people will have to get other jobs. There'll be two jobbing. And that second job will be from their home. 
And so it's very important that they create space and proper space for that. That could be in the attic, but preferably is a pod out in the back garden. Hugh, that's interesting because, I mean, we have seen sort of the requirement, particularly if you have two people living in a house, if you have children living in a house, if you have children studying in a house, the way homes are configured, what we have now probably doesn't suit what we need for the next five or ten years. It isn't about five or ten years, actually. It's 50 years. Mm. So this is here to stay. And we have to understand how we're going to live in a sustainable future where energy will have to be reduced. So that's a given. And our homes have to reflect that. How we work has to reflect that. We have to minimize the amount of transportation that's involved in getting to schools, getting to the office, getting to shops. So things will go back to being much more local. So you can go out the door with the bag, buy the groceries, walk the children to the school. And that is the inevitability of what's going to happen. Now, we can all go screaming and saying, that's never happening. I want to live in my bungalow in the middle of the countryside. But that won't be sustainable. And so we we need to reassess and have a conversation with ourselves. And there's no forum to do that. And more importantly, our homes have to act as offices and they will have to have a third space and in my opinion they will need to be bigger because Mm. you will have to have an office room that is the box room so that two people can work in there and you have space for storage samples whatever it is Mm. so i think there are huge changes but more importantly where i think the success of this is is all of a sudden it'll be viable to live in those small towns and villages around the country that have been abandoned. The way you describe it is the home is becoming a focal point for not just living, but for working also. And the services that we consume and the um, the things we need we perhaps need to be closer to us. But what about the homes themselves, Hugh? And the idea of modular construction is one that I think appeals to me because not every family is the same. It could be a one-person family and they change over time. So do you think we would actually reimagine or, or reconstruct the interior of our home as children grow up or as, you know, as things change? I think that's very important. In Ireland, there's a whole issue over ownership of property. So when you are a owner within an apartment block, it's very difficult to change anything Mm. because, you know, you can't adapt or change the apartment. So I think there has to be another arrangement of the way we live. So it might be that within an apartment block or a development that you go through different stages of your life. So you start off as two people in a small apartment, but then within that apartment, you, you move through the building. And so you have a three-bed or four-bed apartment, and then you go back to having Mm. a two-bedroom apartment with different designs in terms of ergonomics for when we're in our 70s, 80s, and Mm. 90s, where we need handles on doors. Mm. We don't want circular knobs. You know, there are amazing small things that make a huge difference. And I think we have to think about all these things now. But like the buildings we're building today will be here in 500 years time Mm. 
And so when you look out the door, you go, do you really want that building here in 500 years time? So I think there's also a conversation to be had about the quality of our architecture, mm. particularly when it meets the ground, mm. because the buildings need to talk to us. And so often they don't. They just clunk down onto a footpath and they're intimidating. And that doesn't help society. So I just think there's an, an awful lot to be done. I think we have the capability of doing it. Do we have the vision? I was really curious some time ago when I saw Amazon made an investment in uh, a prefab building company. It wasn't a big investment, but I thought it was very significant because what it illustrated for me was that big tech companies and the people who make smart home and, and healthcare at home, that they think that they need to be part of the building solution of the future. So I suppose I'd ask you, what does inside that apartment of the future look like? It is going to be flexible. So you can have a big, you know, kitchen, dining, living area, but you'll be able to move a wall and create a bedroom. Or you can move a wall and create an office. By using system building, as it means within the system, you can integrate everything. You can e integrate the speakers. You can integrate all the wires. So homes will be much more tech friendly. And I think that will be a huge and significant change. Do I think, I think that vegetation will be very important how plants, you know, become part, an integral part of the building. The, the thing we have to get over in our homes is to be able to create space. Unfortunately, at the moment, the size of the apartments we're mm. building are not, are not fit for long-term living, mm. unless you're into the upper end of the market. Mm. Mm. Um, and I think that's a problem. So. And an apartment at the moment is always in, in the vast majority of people's minds is a transitory mm. space. You know, we have to then decide is society a rental society or is it an ownership society? And that's a big question. I mean, in other countries like Germany, a rental society has been the norm for a very long time. Um, in Ireland, we're obsessed with uh, property ownership um, and to our cost over the years. Um, you know, sustainability, though, if we're building houses and apartments that will last for a very long time, surely ownership isn't that important. It's about livability. I totally agree with you. But in Ireland, in Germany, you rent an apartment and it's yours for life. Uh, and, and you know what the rent is going to be for mm. your life. So we don't have that facility in Ireland. You have a change in, in, in how apartments are rented. You, you, in my opinion, you will still have people always want to own a property because it does give them security. My belief in this is you need a citizens council and the citizens council needs to go away and say, here's a number of complex interrelationships give us this vision and let the politicians initiate that in terms of it's not within their tenure it's a 20-year project it's a 25-year project and that's the way we need to address this there is no quick solution 
but we must have a solution because where we are at the moment, the situation will just get worse and worse. Hugh Wallace, architect, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. You're listening to Future Now, Future Next. So we've heard Hugh's view on modular living and building solutions. And I'm now joined by Marguerite Sayers, Executive Director for Customer Solutions ESB. Marguerite, thanks for being here. Not at all. It's great to join you and I'm delighted with the opportunity. The first smart home device that I bought was a smart light bulb and I thought it was fabulous. Now, I've added a few more bits and pieces since, but the world is changing pretty rapidly. So what are we likely to be putting into our homes tomorrow and further on? So I think it, you're, you're right, Andy, it, it starts small. So, you know, you, you start on, um, you know, maybe light bulbs or, you know, using an echo device or a, or a home nest device. Um, and you build from there. So it's it's taking that first step, I think, is really important and it gives people confidence. And once they do that first device or they use that first device, they see the convenience of it and, the, and they build on from it. So the kind of things I think that are coming, one that I'm looking forward to actually is, is uh, smart locks. A um, little bit scary at one level, but if you combine smart locks with something like a smart doorbell and you have remote control of your alarms or from a security point of view, if you're getting a delivery of a package in the future and you're not at home post-COVID, uh, then you can actually turn off your home alarm, use your smart lock to unlock the door. Uh, you know that it's the right person based on being able to see the uh, camera remotely. Uh, you can ask the person to leave the package just inside your door and then you can lock up the house and put the alarm on all while you're remotely in an office or on a beach uh, or somewhere. So, you know, those kind of developments are coming our direction and they're changing how we live our lives. I suppose one of the other really key points that people are really interested in at the moment is around uh, sustainability. So how we heat our homes and how we light them. So there's a lot of devices as well from that point of view. Um, you know, there's an awful lot more solar PV. I think virtually every house that's been built in the last number of years has got solar PV. We're now using heat pumps about three quarters of the, the uh, homes in the country now that have been built again recently have got heat pump technology, which means there's no local emissions, which is fantastic. Uh, and it gives a great level of comfort. And then how we control those devices is also really important. So one that I'm aware that's come into the market is an immersion controller. So immersions are a particular Irish a peculiarity, I suppose, but, you know, people are very worried often that they don't have enough hot water, so they put on the immersion or they go to use it and it's cold. So there's a device coming to the market uh, by the middle of summer now by uh, a company, an Irish company called Climo, that will tell you how much hot water is in that immersion and you can also control it remotely. But it takes that fear factor away. Uh, so th there's lots of, of new devices coming our direction um, and, you know, building on what's there at the moment as well, which are a lot of smart devices uh, that gives us a lot of convenience as well as control and as well as enabling sustainability and our climate change targets. Is it likely that our smartphone will be the centre of this or um, digital assistants like Alexa and Google Home? I think it's going to be a mixture of both. I mean, certainly the phone has become, um, you know, indispensable when it comes to all of these devices, particularly when you're away from the home. Um, I think for me, for, for people who are not used to using these devices, the first thing, the first way they get used to them is local controls. So you're actually standing in front of it. It's giving you information, but you control it that way. And then when you get used to that, you're more inclined then maybe to use your mobile phone uh, to enable the control. And then subsequently, you use possibly one of those smart speaker devices and use it. Um, so it, I think it evolves over time and not everybody will want to use all of those things. Uh, but they're all there. Uh, and again, you can build on what you've done in the past, see if it gives you something extra, if it's of use to you. 
sometimes things are just a novelty they sound mm. good but when you start using them you're not getting a huge amount of benefit out of them but i have to say i use any and all of the things we've just mm. mentioned so um i'm i'm uh, into my gadgets but somebody else may not be to the same extent we're spending a lot more time at home so we're we're living in the way that we used to um, we're maybe restricted to a balcony or our gardens, but we're also working at home. And so what about kind of the smart elements that we need to, you know, uh, that encompass all of those things that our homes are now used for? I think people have a new appreciation of their homes. I mean, if you think of everything we've used our homes for in the last number of months, they've been everything from a cinema to university and office space. Uh, it's where people have got some home care when they've been ill. Um, they've been schools, creches, uh, cinemas, everything, you know, so so people have a, a new appreciation, I think, for their home. Um, probably when we get to the end of the COVID period or, or we have the vaccines rolled out, it's the last place people are going to want to be for a while. But I do think people have got a new appreciation of their, their homes. So um, in, in terms of how we enjoy our homes, as well as that kind of control and information and the use of um, and the availability of broadband is, is, is really key because it enables an awful lot of the things that um, we've mentioned already. So I think that demand for fibre is going to continue to go up. But from a leisure point of view, things like a home cinema, certainly, um, but also uh, looking at how people exercise um, you know a lot of people have been doing kind of yoga online and mm. Pilates online but at a more kind of sophisticated level not so much in Ireland yet but you have things like um, Peloton where mm. you buy the uh, treadmill or you, you, you buy the um, exercise bike and you, you kind of are part of a, a virtual spinning class with a remote coach or I saw a new one called I think it's pronounced Honal which is a, a digital uh, weights device like a television turned on its side and you can follow an exercise class and actually it's got these extendable arms and, and you use it um, in order to exercise within your home so that idea of being able you know a lot of people are still going to want to go back to the actual classes for the sociability and for the form and because you know they can get actual tuition but I think you know for for more people from a convenience point of view maybe even some days during the week they are going to use those virtual classes so we probably won't go back. It's interesting that you mention exercise and how that's changed. Now medicine is an interesting one because over the last year we've seen telemedicine become incredibly important Um, people can't get to GP surgeries or couldn't and uh, um, or maybe hospital visits what about medicine and telemedicine and our homes um, are we likely first of all do you think we'll see more devices inside the home that help with our health and well-being but maybe even devices that speak to our doctor on our behalf there's probably going to be a little bit of reluctance to some of that in the beginning again maybe on, unless you build towards it because there's a little element as you described it, of big brother about it but again from a convenience or from a health and a well-being point of view um, at the lower end of the scale but very sophisticated devices that we have now back to exercise are, are all of those kind of fitness wearables that, that most people have at this stage and what that's moving on to now is devices that will monitor your blood pressure or they monitor your glucose. I think the other area that's really interesting which is kind of linked to that is elder care so you know people who have medical conditions yes but also people who might have been nervous to continue in their own homes on their own now have a suite of devices that you know hopefully won't be intrusive but we'll give them comfort that, you know, you've got um, an awful lot of watches now um, or specific uh, bespoke uh, watches that have a fall alert in them. So if the phone detects a fall and the person can't get to a phone, it will immediately activate and, and ring either a call centre or a relative. Um, it's linked as well to home devices and the smart speakers. They can actually do an awful lot for you. Um, so 
things like um, your blood tests, things like um, glucose that I mentioned already, or, or blood pressure, all of those can be can be monitored um, for elderly people as well. And then for dementia patients, again, who might have been in a facility in the past, you can use, a, again, a, a watcher or a device that's attached to the person that will allow them to call somebody just by pressing a button or you can set up a, a sort of a geofence. So once they go outside of, of that geographic area, which might be your front garden and your back garden, it will actually alert and trigger and tell somebody else, a relative, that the person is actually beginning to wander. So as you mention sustainability, and we're talking about energy within our homes, solar is the thing I think, or the source of energy that most people are familiar with now. Is it all about solar and uh, generating and storing that energy at home? I think solar is definitely the more, most pervasive and available technology at the moment and probably one of the other reasons that it appeals to people, as well as the fact that the price has just collapsed, you know, compared to, to 10 or 15 years ago, is, you know, any house that's been built has a roof and it really doesn't impact on an individual in any way if that roof has layered uh, another kind of a two or a three inch um you know, a solar panel on top of it. You know, it's it's not something that gets on your in your way on a daily basis, and you have the convenience of it. So, I, I think between price and convenience, that that is going to continue to be the case. So, most homes that have been built in the country recently have got uh, solar. I think right back when people were interested originally in microgeneration, the the early adopters, if you like, probably went for small little wind turbines. Um, they're they're not as reliable. And um, we've daylight every day, and actually the solar operates on on light uh, more than um, you know people think you have to have an awful lot of sun. But actually, we do quite well on, in solar in in Ireland. You can collect that energy during the day and use it at night as well. So you're effectively getting you know two 12-hour periods. So one during the day when it's bright, and another one uh, at night. And um, so so that's something people are really interested in. For those people who don't have the wherewithal to um, maybe they don't have a roof, they're, they're in an apartment or they're in a, a protected or historic building, they can't put up solar panels. So then they're very interested in where their energy that they're buying from an energy supplier comes from. You know, is that coming from a green source? Is it coming from wind farms? What kind of portfolio have you got? So that's something as well that's that's really interesting customers. Um, but it's, it's something that is almost becoming a hygiene factor. People either want to have um, access to that renewable energy that they have created themselves. Uh, and there is a, a new microgeneration uh, support scheme due this year. It's, it's been consulted on at the moment for people uh, within their homes, which will be an additional incentive. But if they're not in a position, they want to know what their supply company is doing and where they're getting their energy. So much greater consciousness about that, which is great to see given our, our 2030 targets. Solar, uh, we've been talking about that for a long time, but there is an awful lot of speculation and talk about the potential in hydrogen. Can you explain that to us? Hydrogen, I think, is going to be a real game changer because it does uh, a number of things. And and really what's important, I suppose, is, is when hydrogen is used uh, at the end of the day, if you were to use it in a hydrogen vehicle or if you were to use it uh, eventually within homes in, in, in boilers, the byproduct is, is effectively water. So, um, you know, it's, it's not something that's going to cause any issue at all uh, from an environmental point of view. So there's huge hopes for, for hydrogen. And um, one of the other things that it would do in due course at a, a kind of what we call a grid scale on a big scale is we're all aware that there's just as much renewable wind that's generated at night, there's as much uh, hydropower that is um, generated at night or the capability is the same. 
but the use isn't the same. The demand isn't the same because we're all asleep at night. So industries are using it, all right, but the, the same demand is not there. So if we had a facility to store um, all of that energy that's produced at night and then use it during the day, um, then that would be a really useful thing to be able to do. And actually hydrogen gives us a facility to do that. So we could actually use, uh, there's big amounts of electricity needed to um, actually generate hydrogen, to create hydrogen. So if we could do that with green energy, then we, that's a way of storing energy until it's then used in something like a car, a heating system or in houses for heating or in an industrial process. Has building technology kept up with the sort of vision that you describe in regards to windows and insulation and the technology that powers a house? How does that look over the next 10 years? It's really interesting, actually, um, looking at what's been done in construction, which is obviously going through a really tough uh, period of time at the moment. But... There's a pent up demand, as you know, in Ireland for housing. I think there's about 90,000 uh, people with, with uh, you know, an unmet housing need. And that's probably gone up over the last uh, period of time because people haven't uh, been in a position to, to buy homes as much. On top of that, our population is increasing. So I think the estimate that Engineers Ireland have um, based on their research is that by 2030, actually, we're going to need about another, um, sorry, in the next 20 years, we're going to need about another million homes. Um, so, so there's a huge capacity to actually ensure that the future is done correctly. And actually the methods and the materials are there for that. So I think the standard of new houses because of things like the building regulations that are there now, and also because of the technology that's there means, first of all, the, new, the standard of new homes across all the things you mentioned, the materials that are being used and the renewable technologies that can be um, put in day one. And, um, you know, they're a really top quality house. Like at the moment, on average in Ireland, our homes are 57% less energy efficient than our European neighbours. But the new homes that we're building are absolutely on a par. And the other thing that's um, worth considering, and there's some really interesting work being done on this as well, is how we build those homes. So first of all, the materials are really good, highly insulated, very comfortable to live in. But also there's a lot of work going into, you know, do you, do you build those based on modules? So you can actually get the module to add on to the, the apartment that's been constructed or the house, which is actually a preformed perfect kitchen or a preformed perfect bathroom that comes in a module. And it's really high quality because it's done offsite, not done piecemeal and is checked and also means that then that the speed of construction is much faster. And they're taking that to another level, for example, I know of a, of a test project in, in, in Denmark and there's probably others, a place called Nyberg where they're looking at the idea of having adaptable houses. So houses that are built and that change and adapt as, for example, a family grows. So it goes from maybe just having a couple originally, then has children added in while they're small, have certain requirements. Uh, you can move the internal walls around quite easily and for not a huge amount of cost. And then you can get to a situation over time that you can split that house maybe in two if there's a mm -hmm. divorce or you can... Uh, actually add another entrance if the uh, children grow up and they want some level of autonomy themselves and they want to have independence. So it's a really interesting um, look at what we could have in future. So that idea of adaptable homes and there's other things, like I said, being tested as well. So the materials are there um, the devices are there. The level of comfort I think we're going to experience in future is, is really up there. And also that idea of having homes that are adaptable over our full life, lifetime is also a great idea. Marguerite Sayers, Executive Director for Customer Solutions at ESB. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Andy. Really enjoyed the chat. 
Thanks for joining us for Future Now, Future Next, and thanks to my guests Hugh Wallace, Marguerite Sayers, and Ali Sheridan. I think it's fair to say that all of our guests today embody that same sense of optimism for the future as George Keck had when he set about designing the House of Tomorrow. Join us next time for Future Now, Future Next in association with ESB. ESB, leading the way to a brighter future for all.